The book of Revelation is, again, a revelation of Jesus himself. Uh, it's a, a revelation given by Jesus, but it's a revelation of Jesus, of his character, his conduct, the things that he desires. And in these sections, we've been considering his word to a variety of churches. And uh, just from a, a pastoral perspective, um, occasionally I like to consider where we are at um, as a church uh, using these seven churches. And so it's a, it's a way for us to evaluate what, what church are we and what church are we like, and also just evaluating my own life. What kind of believer am I? What kind of Christian life am I living? And so uh, these words are, are easy to apply at times, and sometimes uh, they're the word in due season. And for uh, this church, it was going to be a word in due season. They were hearing uh, from the Lord exactly what they needed to hear from the Lord at the time they needed to hear it. Uh, the church there in Laodicea was a, a wealthy church. It was uh, at the crossroads of lots of, inner, uh, lots of trade. So from east to west and north to south kind of met right in the center. Um, I, I sometimes try to tell people where Valley Springs is at by saying it's where two highways meet. And they're like, oh, that must be a big city. I'm like, it's a four-way stop. So it's, <laughs> we're not that. But they, they had two major highways intersecting, and because of that, there was a lot of wealth in the city. And in fact, this city uh, was in the middle of a, a big earthquake, and it destroyed most of the city. And Rome, because it was a Roman city at that time, offered, hey, we will pay to rebuild your city. And they said, no, thank you. We will do it ourselves. And you know what? They did. They bootstrapped the city back up. They got it going again with their own resources, without any outside help at all. They had uh, different things that contributed to their economy. One of the things that they were well known for was uh, a black wool that was uh, kind of a shiny black wool that was sought after everywhere. In fact, the city was kind of named after, as kind of a nickname, that type of wool. So everybody knew it as this place where you got the finest black wool clothing because they bred the sheep there, they were able to feed them there, and it just produced this beautiful uh, textile. They also were known uh, for having certain uh, doctors that could provide healing for both uh, ear problems and eye problems. And they were, people would go from far and wide to this city for medical treatment and medical help. And so they had a lot going for them, but as a city, they had one really big weakness. Um, they were kind of a plateau city, and the nearest water was like six miles away. And so anytime they were attacked, uh, they just gave up because uh, all of their water came in a aqueduct, uh, which is like a big trough of water that was coming from one side to the other, and it was completely unguarded the entire way, so the enemy could at any point just cut off their water supply. Um, but their water came from two sources. Uh, one source was uh, hot springs, which if you've ever been in natural hot springs, they're uh, a delight. At the Bible college I went to, they had natural hot springs there, uh, and it was wonderful to just be able to sit in a natural hot spring. Uh, but uh, two things about them. That's kind of a, a smelly affair. <laughs> if you've ever been in natural hot springs, it's a lot of sulfur that's in there. Um, and the water is very not tasty because <laughs> of all of the minerals that are in it. Um, so that was one source of their... Uh, water. Another source of the water was uh, kind of mountain runoff, so it was very cold water at its source, and it was very 
hot water at the other source, but by the time both of those got to the city, they were neither hot nor cold streams of water. And so they, they had this water inlet, they had all of this wealth, and there's this church that, um, in their own eyes, uh, they're thriving. They uh, are addressed by Jesus uh, as, in verse 14, as the one who is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of creation. And all of these things are combining to say, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth to you. And it's the reason why he's preparing him with this title is because of all of the churches, um, even the dead church had something good it could write home about. And it's like, you have a reputation that you're alive. Other people would look at you and be like, that's a living church. Uh, and this church seems to be uh, kind of in a different spot. Notice with me uh, in verses 14 through 17, the problem. Uh, the problem at Laodicea is that uh, lukewarm Christians make God sick. Uh, I actually had the word vomit in my original notes when I'm like, mm, it's, it's a bit intense <laughs> for my first point. Um, it's the word that's used in scripture, but it's, it's what he says plainly is the problem. Uh, notice there in verse 16, he says, so then because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Uh, he describes the problem as being lukewarm, and then he defines that problem as being neither hot nor cold. And he, he really is not saying he wants us to be cold to the Lord, um, because it, it seems like he wants them to either be cold or hot, because he says, I wish you were cold or hot. And both of those streams of water that came into their city uh, were known for their one, cold water being refreshing to those who were in that city where that water came from. If you've ever uh, engaged in any kind of exercise, I used to have a, a shirt as a long distance runner that says, I run to make water taste better. And if you've ever exercised or been working outside and it was really hot, uh, a cup of cold water is just like, it's the thing. <laughs> it really tastes great. Um, and then on the other end, the hot springs were known for their healing properties. And um, if you've it's like being in a hot tub, but back in the day, they didn't really have those. And so they would go to the place where there were the hot springs, and it was known for its relaxation, and you can recover there, and all of this greatness. And so there was good on both ends, um, but it, it had gone too far from the source to the point to where it was lukewarm. And one historian actually says the uh, of the hot water that was coming because of all of the minerals in it and everything like that, there was a waterfall that would come and passerbyers or people who would come through the city who didn't know better would see this waterfall with like this mineral spring water flowing would be like, oh, that's just what I need. And they would go and drink from it and immediately spit it out. And I'm sure that was very entertaining for all the locals. <laughs> like, yeah, you don't know better, do you? <laughs> and so this picture of, you know, spitting out lukewarm water was probably not an uncommon sight for these Laodiceans to see these people who are looking to be refreshed and instead totally disgusted by what they had just put in their mouth. And uh, he's going to explain the problem further, but the, the heart of the problem is in how they see themselves. Uh, notice what he says there in verse 17. He says, you say and do not know. 
And so what they say about themselves, what they thought they were, like if you ask them, what kind of Christian are you? What, tell me about your, your Christian life. They would answer with these words. They, they would say uh, in verse 17, I am rich. I have become wealthy and I have need of nothing. And if, if you think about that as a picture, that, that would be a great place to be uh, if it were true, right? Like if that, all of those facts were lining up and it was true, then that would be a wonderful thing. And uh, if you took a, a self-esteem poll amongst the church of Laodicea, they would all be tens. Like I, maybe they'd you know, fill in 11. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm completely blessed. I, I don't have any needs at all. I'm rich and have become wealthy. And in fact, when I think of my needs, there's nothing. That was the perception of themselves. When they, when they looked at themselves, that's what they saw. Uh, and yet, what Jesus saw was something entirely different. And what Jesus saw is what he said they didn't know about themselves. Uh, and it couldn't be any further from the truth. Uh, how they saw themselves, what they actually were, Jesus says there in verse 17, what, what they didn't know was that they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And even though in their answer they don't say that they're seeing clearly, it's implied that they think they're seeing clearly. But Jesus is pointing out the key to their problem is that they don't see clearly, is that they aren't looking at themselves uh, in the same way that he's looking at them. And it's kind of an interesting place to be in, uh, to have confidence when you ought not to have confidence. Uh, when I was uh, younger, my dad told me a story of a time when he was walking with a bunch of his friends and they were walking up to this other group of guys that were looking all tough. And so he's walking up to them all tough. And then he realized none of his friends were with him. <laughs> uh, that can be unnerving <laughs> in that moment. Uh, to, to walk with confidence when you ought not to walk with confidence uh, should be uh, at least distressing when you become aware of that. And they had confidence when they ought not to have confidence. Now, we're not told how other people saw them. Uh, again, a couple weeks ago, we were looking at the dead church who had a reputation of being alive, how everybody else saw them was alive, but um, whether or not they knew they were dead or not, how they presented themselves was alive. This church may be in the exact opposite spot. They uh, thought of themselves quite well. They were like, we're alive, we're doing quite well. And, and we're not told of the outside perspective, but I kind of wonder uh, if anybody else thought that of them. If what they saw when they looked at them was like, They don't have it together. They don't have what they need. They, you know, like they could go. They could give them the feedback if they were open to it. Um, but that's kind of the thing, right? You you can't help people who don't want help, and the kind of people who don't want help are the kind of people who aren't aware that they need help. They don't know that they need what they don't have because they don't. They're not aware of it. And so, there could not have been a more stark contrast between how they saw themselves and how the Lord saw them. And uh, it's kind of the worst kind of deception. Uh, Paul writes about it in uh, the book of Romans as being self-deceived, uh, which is really the worst uh, because you can't even blame anybody else for that. <laughs> like, I did this to me. And uh, how, how did they get there? Uh, I kind of tongue-in-cheek say how to be lukewarm. And it's indifference fueled 
by willful ignorance. How to be lukewarm is to be indifferent and have that indifference fueled by willful ignorance. Uh, indifference is like, you know, I just don't care. There's not, my, my graduating class, like if I could put one word, hashtag, to describe my graduating class uh, in high school, it would be indifferent. Uh, we kind of knew how the, how the things worked, like at rallies, there was the senior rally, and they would have competitions, but no matter what, the seniors would win, and like, all right, who's gonna be the loudest? The freshmen, are you loud? And they would yell, and then it would be however loud. And we got to the seniors, and us being the seniors, knowing that the seniors always win, we're like, <laughs> we don't care. <laughs> like, we, as a graduating class, I would say indifferent. We just don't care. If we had a theme song, it would be meh. <laughs> and that's what this church was, about their relationship with the Lord. They're like, meh. Yeah, I, I have what I need. I'm rich. I've become wealthy. I don't, I don't need anything, really. But it's, it was fueled by, that attitude was fueled by willful ignorance. God's word would have corrected both uh, of the things that they were ignorant of. Uh, Pastor Damien Kyle uh, said on this, what they did not know is what they could have readily known if they had any knowledge of the Bible at all. God's word makes clear our need. We are poor. God's word makes clear his sufficiency. He is rich. God, in fact, is about to counsel them personally with regard to this. God's word offers that counsel, uh, but because they're not in his word, he's going to have a word with them. And even though every letter ends with, he who has an ear to hear, Jesus says, if anyone will hear me to this church. Uh, they are a church that has a form of godliness, but denies its power. They, they have you know, Bibles on their shelves, they have prayer meetings, uh, but their, their Bible is just, it gets a ride to church once a week. Uh, they have prayer meetings, but nobody really goes and nobody really asks for anything. There's, there's a form of godliness there, but there's not a, a, a desperation or dependence on God. That ought to mark the Christian life. And so the problem, lukewarm Christians make God sick. The solution is God's counsel enriches Christians. Notice what he says there in verse 18. He's going to give them counsel for a few different things. He says, I counsel you. And I just want to pause there for a moment. Think about what God's doing right now. Uh, he sees this church uh, that in its pride and in its arrogance uh, thinks they have it all together when everything has fallen apart. And uh, I'm not sure if you've ever been around a person quite like that uh, who thinks they have it all together and everything is falling apart. Uh, but it's, it's quite easy to not want to be around that person. <laughs> I'd be like, fine, you got it together. God bless you. <laughs> be warmed and filled. And uh, just to just leave them alone. Let them off to their own devices. And uh, Jesus is not, not that way. Uh, he sees their need. Uh, and like when Jesus was on earth and he saw uh, the people without a shepherd, uh, he was moved with compassion for them. Uh, and it's his love for them 
that he's giving this counsel to them. Uh, but the way he's counseling them is like a one-on-one -on -one counseling service. Uh, this is, in fact, just some pastoral insight. If any of you are called to teach God's word in a manner like this, this is how I think about Sunday morning sermons. Is It's a counseling session between me and all of you. And I look at God's word, the word that we're studying, and I, would, I ask myself the question, if I were using this in a counseling session, why would I have turned to this passage? And this is what's happening in real time. God's saying, look, this is not... <laughs> the angel speaking to you, I, I'm talking to you right now. And he, he's saying, I'm talking to you. And he's already said, I'm talking to you. It's like he wants to get the point across is I'm talking to you. I counsel you. They're in need of counsel. If you would have asked them before, do you need any counsel? Do you need any help right now? Do you, do you need a special word from the Lord? It would have been, oh, I'm good. I, I don't need any word from the Lord right now. I don't need any of God's counsel right now. I'm good. And yet God confronts that thought with the three words, I counsel you. Uh, and his first bit of counsel there in verse 18 is that they should buy from him gold refined in the fire. Notice what he says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Uh, which is kind of a weird thought to think about. Like, how do you buy gold if you're, you're poor? <laughs> how, how does this transaction work? Um, I, I've been encouraged by friends sometimes, oh, oh, you should totally buy this. This is such a great deal. And I was like, is it free? Because if it's not free, it is too expensive. <laughs> it really doesn't matter how good the deal is when you have nothing. <laughs> you can afford nothing unless it's free. And Jesus has just described them as having nothing. And he's like, I've got counsel for you who think you're rich. Buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich. Remember what they said of themselves? We have become wealthy. They have not, but they can. And God wants to get them there. He wants them to be able to say and him agree, I have become wealthy. But not because of what they have in the bank account or because of the perceived goods that they have, the place in life that they're at. He wants them to be rich because he has enriched them. Not only are they to buy gold, but they are also to buy white garments. Uh, they were known for their black garments, um, but what they needed to be clothed in was not the finest of what the world had to offer, but the finest of what God has to offer. Uh, robed in his righteousness. Isaiah says that our, our righteousness, when we clothe ourselves in our righteousness, is it's filthy rags, uh, which if you do some word studying on that, is not good. <laughs> if, you think filthy if you think vomit's bad, this is worse. He wants them to be clothed in white, and they think they're clothed, but they're naked. And, and again, he, he tells them the purpose for this counsel, that they would buy these things, that they may be rich, that they may be clothed, that the shame of their nakedness may not be revealed. So the question is, of course, how? How do you buy something when you have nothing? 
what does it cost to buy this gold refined in the fire, to buy these white garments from Jesus? To buy what Jesus is selling is going to cost you your pride. To buy what Jesus is selling, it's going to cost you your pride, your self-sufficiency. Peter talks about being clothed in humility in our relationship to one another in 1 Peter 5. He says, clothe yourselves in humility in submitting to one another. And then he gives the reason why. He quotes from a proverb. He says, for God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. He would go on to say, to cast all of your cares upon him for he cares for you. This church was a church that had no cares, but not because it shouldn't have had no cares. (laughs) It should have had many cares. If you're poor, blind, and naked, you should have some cares, (laughs) right? And those cares should be obvious to you if they're not obvious to everyone else. It was going to cost their pride, but pride keeps us from praying because pride blinds us. Pride is thinking of yourself more highly than you ought. It's, it's the exact opposite of humility. Humility, I love the old definition in a Webster's Dictionary that I found. It was uh, to accurately understand your own shortcomings, to be conscious of one's own defects is the, the definition, to be conscious of one's own defects. Uh, when I was teaching the junior hires what this means in reality, it would be like if I only had one leg and the other one was cut off at the knee, to be conscious of my own defect would be, uh, if I wanted to get from here to there, I would hop, because I would be aware that I don't have a leg, <laughs> right? And uh, if I did that, if I was humble, I would get there. And if I was proud, well, pride goes before the fall for a reason. I would get about a half step, because I thought of myself more highly than I thought I, I should have. And humility is an accurate understanding of ourselves followed by an accurate presentation of ourselves. To not pretend like we have things together that we do not. And to present ourselves as being as needy as we are. That's it. But humble people pray. Humble people cast their cares upon the Lord because they know the Lord cares for them. Proud people, there's there's no... Proud people, prayer services. I mean, there, there's kind of one in scripture. Jesus gives the illustration of two people going to pray, and one prays thus unto himself. <laughs> That's a proud person, prayer service. He's not talking to God. He's talking about himself to himself to impress himself, and hopefully everybody else who's listening. There's another guy who goes to pray, doesn't look to God, bows his head, beats his chest, and asks for mercy because he knows He needs mercy. James writes in James 4.2, yet you do not have because you do not ask. And this is the state of the church in Laodicea. You don't have what you do need because you're not asking. God's counseling them, ask. God, in speaking to David, when David was being called out for his sin with Bathsheba, uh, said this to him through the prophet. Uh, Again, God speaking, he said, I gave you 
your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have given you much more. My own summary of that verse there in 2 Samuel 12, 8 is I gave and I gave and I would have given more. Sometimes we have needs that aren't fulfilled because we aren't asking. And it's not because God doesn't know. We are instructed in the Sermon on the Mount that uh, we're not to pray with uh, vain repetition. That means asking over and over and over again, thinking that we'll be heard because of our prayers. Uh, Because the Father in heaven knows our prayers before we even ask. Uh, And that might be kind of confusing. Why are we asking them? (laughs) If God knows what I need, why doesn't he just give it to me? God asks us to pray for the things we need for at least two reasons. Because it is good for us to acknowledge that we have needs. And because it's good for us to acknowledge that he has what we need. Jesus, right after that exhortation, would command them and teach them how to pray. And he taught their their prayers should be a daily prayer. A daily acknowledgement, God, I don't got this. (laughs) You got this. Lord, help me. That was just a prayer we were praying right before service this morning. Lord, be gracious. Amen. (laughs) God's counsel to them wasn't just to buy from him, but to do... uh, for themselves, what they had a reputation for doing for others. God's counsel for them was to anoint their eyes. So what were they to do? Anoint your eyes with ISAV. Why were they supposed to do it? That you may see. Uh, they had an eye problem, and it was evident by how they spoke. Their eye problem was they couldn't see themselves, but it was evident in their eye statements. I am rich. I have become wealthy. I need nothing. It was an eye problem. (laughs) They thought, I got this. And it was because they did not see themselves as God saw them. God's counsel to them uh, has an aim. God's counsel, it aims at zealous repentance. Notice what he says there in verse 19. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. I want you to see that again. He says, as many as I love, so everyone he loves, this is the group of people he's talking about, everyone he loves, everyone he loves, he rebukes and chastens. If you've been rebuked by the Lord, if you've been chastened by the Lord, you have been loved by the Lord. The book of Hebrews chapter 12 says, in fact, this is evidence that you're the Lord's kid. If you have kids, you really understand this. No one disciplines your kids more than you. And no one probably loves your kids as much as you. And these things aren't contrary to one another. They may be contrary to one another in your kid's mind. But if you're doing it right, it's your love that is bringing this discipline. And this discipline isn't evidence that God doesn't love these people in Laodicea, these self-deceived, proud, ignorant, boastful people he loves. What is it that he wants them to do? It's right there at the end of verse 19. Therefore, be zealous and repent. 
God's desire, God's desired response for all of these people is to be zealous and repent. In, in other words, God was asking them to be what they had not been, which is zealous, and to do what they had not done, which was repent, in order to receive what they did not have, which is riches, sight, clothing. Again, God was asking them to be what they had not been, to do what they had not done in order to receive what they did not have. He was asking for a whole life transformation, like a Jesus intervention. Like they thought all life was good, and then Jesus is like, hey, can we, uh, can we have a conversation? Their repentance would produce a zeal that they had not been living in. God's desire for each one of us is to have close fellowship with him. Notice verses 20 through 22. God desires close fellowship with his people. Verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. In this church, Jesus was on the outside, waiting to be let on the inside. Last week, we considered that there are doors that only God can open and only God can close. And now we consider a door that God will not open or close. It's a door that he stands on the outside of in this church because they're proud. And he's saying he's standing there, he's knocking. It kind of reminds me of the story uh, in the book of Acts where Peter is miraculously let out of jail and he's like, thinks it's a vision and then he realizes, oh, I've been sprung. Let's get out of here. And he runs home and he knocks on the gate and the girl comes to the gate and he's like, ha, ah, it's Peter and leaves him outside. <laughs> Peter's like, I'm still a fugitive. <laughs> Somebody let me in. <laughs> he was probably thinking these very words. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. <laughs> if anyone hears my voice, please open it up. <laughs> I want in. But Jesus is on the outside. That's where he views himself in this church, is on the outside wanting in. And even though every church's letter ends with, if anyone has an ear to hear, he says to this church, if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and dine with him. He desires intimate fellowship with us, but he's not going to kick the door down. He wants to give us all that he has, but he's not going to force us to take it. Uh, there's a, a short little book, kind of a pamphlet. I, I printed up a PDF copy. Um, some of them are out in the foyer. Um, if you want a more official version, perhaps the Lord can hook us up with those. Uh, it's called My Heart, Christ's Home. And it just describes, kind of, it works through the metaphor that he's, he's using here about inviting Christ into every part of your life, not just your Sunday morning attendance, but your Monday morning attendance at work or with your kids or wherever at the next family gathering. God wants to be a part of every part of our life. Genesis chapter 4, 
Jesus, Jesus, God speaking to Cain, uh, Genesis chapter 4 coming after Genesis chapter 3, for those familiar with the uh, number line. Uh, Genesis chapter 3, uh, sin enters the world. Uh, Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden. They have a son. They name him Cain. And they have another son. His name is Abel. And Cain becomes super jealous of his brother. And God counsels him. The first time we're given God giving counsel. <laughs> he counsels him. He's like, hey, sin lies at the door. And its desire is to rule over you. But you should rule over it. And at the other end of scripture, we have another one at the door. And one of the two are, are coming in. There's, there's going to be a guest in our, in our house. And it will either be the Lord if we let him, or sin, which is crouching like a lion, seeking to rule over us. And so the Lord says, if you hear my voice, if you open the door, I will come in. I will, that is this fellowship that comes through sharing a meal, which in, in the Jewish culture was significant. You wouldn't have a meal with somebody you didn't want to be close with. And Jesus is saying, I want a meal with you. I want, I want to be close with you. The promise to those who open the door is fellowship with him. There's a second promise that comes to those with a familiar title. He says, to those who overcome. We've considered those who overcome in a variety of churches. And in this particular instance, uh, these overcomers, who overcome in the same way through the power and the blood of Jesus, are invited to do something different than the other overcomers. Notice what he says there in verse 21. To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Not only does he want to be in our house, he wants us to be in the seat with him. Uh, that's one of my favorite parts of being a dad right now is my kids can sit on my lap and sit right next to me in the chair. And it's, a, it's the best. It's the best. That's it. That's all. Um, and the Lord desires that kind of fellowship with, with these people, with people who are comfortable with their own throne. Thank you very much. And he's like, I'd, I'd like to invite you to sit with me. I'd like you to sit with me and to enjoy the victory that I've provided. He's like, I want you to be an overcomer because of what I overcame. And he conquered sin and death, the, the biggest problem we have. Jesus concludes this letter in the same way that he concludes many of his letters. Almost all of them, in fact. Uh, with, uh, there's some variety, but verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, this word was a necessary word for those in Laodicea. When they got this, uh, I'm not sure if you've ever gotten, uh, sometimes it's the, like a Christianese word, it's called a rhema word. It's, it refers to a word that's the right word spoken at the right time. And uh, in comedy, we would call that the punchline. It's the right word spoken at the right time. In, in counseling, it's the right counsel given at the right time. And this would have been that for them. And I'm, I'm confident because God's word is living and active 
in our lives that there's been a right word for the right time for each one. And, and, and the question isn't, have we heard it, but have we received it? Are, are we going to take it and do something with it? If you're new to the Lord, if you're just kind of figuring out your Christian walk, uh, there are some things you should know that we should have gleaned from this passage of Scripture, that God's Word is the standard by which we evaluate ourselves. Elsewhere in God's Word, uh, we are told that comparing ourselves amongst ourselves is foolish. Um, but this is the way of the world, comparing ourselves amongst ourselves. Like What other standard is there? Well, the standard is God's Word. God's Word is the standard. And it's... Uh, uh, we're told of God's word in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 that it is profitable for all that work that we need in our life. It's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The way one commentator explains that verse is that God's word is profitable for telling us what is right, what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. Uh, so if that's not like everything I need in my Christian walk <laughs> in terms of knowing what God wants. That's what God's word does. Psalm 119, 105 says that his word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And my, my own understanding of what that means is when it's a lamp unto our feet, it shows us where we're at. And, and the lamp unto our path, it shows us where we need to go. This is the function of God's word in our life. James uh, chapter 1, verse 22 through 25, he kind of uses a metaphor of God's word being a mirror by which we can examine ourselves. Now, in the context, he's talking about forgetful hearers, and he's like, you look in a mirror, and you immediately forget what kind of man you are. And I'm like, James, enough about me when I was in junior high. I didn't even, like, there was a period of time, probably in my 20s, where... Uh, I maintained singleness the entire time. Lots of ladies praying for my wife, who was an answer to prayer. Uh, I did not even own a mirror. <laughs> the only mirror I had in my house was the one that came with the house. It was built in. <laughs> I brought no additional mirrors. Uh, when my wife came into the house, now we have this uh, armoire thing that has a giant mirror. It's great for self-examination. <laughs> we have other mirrors in the house. And, and God's word is that for us. It allows us to see us as he sees us. The world in which we live in celebrates uh, in independence and self-sufficiency. If you go to the bookstore, there's entire sections dedicated to this. Self-help is what it's called. And unfortunately, sometimes in that self-help section, you will find Christian books. Christian books. Christian self-help. So unless it's a book on prayer... <laughs> That's it, not Christian. The self-help that Christians have is helping ourselves to God's riches at Christ's expense. It's grace. The world in which we live in says phrases like this all the time. Uh, I can do this. I have enough. I am enough. Uh, there, there was a, a book that came out a long time ago that says, I'm okay, you're okay. And there's a response to that book in my generation that says, I'm not okay, but that's okay. <laughs> and it's not. 
this is, they're, they're coming closer to the truth. Like, I'm not okay, and that's why I need Jesus, <laughs> right? And the gospel truth is that we don't have what we do need. And the gospel truth is that God and only God has what we need. The gospel truth is that God gives what we need by grace. It's not earned. It's asked for and received. He's done all of the work for it. There are no bootstrapped, self-made Christians, just sinners saved by grace. God made you to need him, and you're never going to grow out of that, and that's okay. Don't think that if you're new to the Lord that someday you're going to have it all figured out, uh, unless by that you mean that you know that you need Jesus. That doesn't change. When God made Adam and Eve, he made them to need him. And they were in the perfect world without any sin. A perfect relationship with God is a dependent relationship on, with God. Our sufficiency comes from him. If you're a mature believer, if you've been walking with the Lord, I'm going to ask you how your zeal is in a couple ways, but that's what I'm asking about is your zeal for the Lord, has it grown cold? Is it lukewarm? And one of the ways I can ask you that, um, prying pastorally, is how is your prayer life? If someone asked you how they could pray for you, would your answer echo the lukewarm Laodiceans? I'm rich. I'm wealthy. I have need of nothing. What has God been speaking to you about in his word? Are you letting God's word be the lamp and the light in your life? Do you realize that it's dark without that? If you're not a believer this morning and the Lord has brought you here, that verse I mentioned was a verse that, uh, of not Jesus knocking on the door was a verse I memorized when I was uh, a teenager to share the gospel with non-believers. But that, that verse was written for believers who had Jesus on the outside. Um, but God's heart for you is the same. He desires all to be saved, to all, that all would come to saving knowledge of him. And he stands at the door of your heart. Perhaps you came this morning and you knew that you didn't have what you do need. The good news of the gospel is that God has all of what you need and he, and he wants you to buy it from him, but the, the price you must pay, the cost, it's gonna cost you your pride. It's gonna require humility. It's going to sound like, Lord, I don't have what I need. Lord, you have what I need. I want to be rich. I want to be clothed. I don't want to be wretched, poor, blind, and naked. I'm going to invite the worship team up, and as I do, I'm going to lead us in a word of prayer that perhaps you can pray along with me. So, team, if you would come forward. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your love for us. Lord, that uh, even when we really, really don't get our need for you, uh, Lord, that's not frustrating to you. 
You have not loved us less when we thought more of ourselves than we ought. But Lord, you do, and you have spoken to us this morning. Not just with regard to our neediness, but Lord, of your sufficiency to meet our needs. Lord, everything that we need, you have. Lord, you have provided new life through the death of your Son. Lord, that as your word says, that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we shall be saved. And Lord, that our need for you has not changed. We need you every day. We need you every moment. And Lord, your desire, more than we ought to desire, you desire to be the one that meets those needs. Lord, you desire to be the one who makes us rich, who clothes us, who opens our eyes to the truth. Lord, we look to you this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.